in 2 Samuel 7 today. We're going to only do the introduction part, verses 1 through 7. Let me read it for us. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains, or a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd, to, to shepherd my people Israel, saying, what have you, uh, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So today, I titled the sermon, David's Proposal about building God a house and God's corrective to David's proposal. And then the question at the end of the day, we'll still have it at the end of the day, who will build the house? So the outline of the little seven verses that we're going to be in, and I'm going to probably have to sit down and not stand on my foot this whole time, so I apologize, uh, is two, just two, two points. The first one is David's big idea uh, for building God's house, verses one through three, and then God's big corrective to David's big idea, verses four through seven. Uh, before we jump in, I want us to do two things. Can we get that feedback a little bit, maybe turn it down a bit? Um, two things I want us to know, kind of tuck in our, our minds as we go through. Um, Jerusalem has just been given over to David. He conquered it, and he drove out the Jebusites, who had been there for a long time, uh, because in Joshua, as he took um, over the promised land, the conquest didn't drive all the peoples out, and there were some people left in Jerusalem. Well, we hadn't heard of Jerusalem very much until 2 Samuel chapter 5, but we have heard about it a couple of times. One time was in Genesis, chapter, early, early chapters of Genesis, when there was a king of Jerusalem. Do you remember who that was? Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, uh, and he was also the priest of Jerusalem. So this Melchizedek figure, this man, this uh, king, was the king and the priest. Uh, we need to understand that in those days, it wasn't really cool to take on the king, the priest, and the prophet as one person, right? That's what happened to Saul, if you remember. He was the king. He wasn't the priest. And when he tried to take over the priestly duty, which God forbade him to do, forbid him to do, uh, he was rejected as king. And, um, but this king of Salem and this priest of Salem, Melchizedek, was a proper thing. Well, then we have in uh, the 2 Samuel 5, when God gave Jerusalem, or Mount Sinai, which is the same place, to David and God's people, two things happened. Uh, it became the new center of rule and reign. It was the center for the kingship of God forevermore. Well, one other thing happened. God brought not only the kingship there, but he also brought the, the house of worship there. The center of the kingship and the center of the priesthood was now in one place. Very important for us to understand that for the first time in Israel's history, both the center of worship and the center of his rule and reign are in one place, which will point us to uh, Christ, and we'll see that in a little bit in the text. Second Samuel, the second thing I want us to get is, is to remember three verses in Second Samuel 5. Let me read those to us, verses 10 through 12. 
And David became greater and greater, for, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And David knew that the Lord had established him over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Um, I want us to get those two things clearly in our mind uh, as we go forward, that God is the one who gave to David uh, the land and the throne. David didn't take it on himself. God was with him, and he's the one that gave him the victory over and over and over. Um, how many of you have ever been to like a theme park, uh, Disney or some of those, and you're trying to find like, where do we go next? And you're like, man, that's on the other side of the park. And, and you go to this big board, this map, now, it might be more electronic than this these days, but in my days, you would go to this big map and like, you are here. Have you ever seen a little sign that says you are here? And then you know where you're going to go. You're like, okay, I can get there. But if you just had, here's where you're going and no idea where you are, could you get there? Probably not. Uh, that's the same way even on your GPS today, right? You, you have a, a destination you put in, but then after you put in your destination, it fills in where you are and it drives your little car to the destination. If you didn't know where you were, and like, there's the destination, I have no idea where I'm at. We need to know where we are, and I think it's very good to be continually reminded where we are in God's unfolding story of redemption. Um, and so, uh, without understanding where we are in God's unfolding story, we don't know how to apply the truths that were there. So, I'm going to go through the whole Bible. Ready? <laughs> uh, God has used Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. God has used Joshua to lead his people to the land that he's promised, to the promised land. We've, we've just covered a lot of history, by the way. Uh, and the next time, the next period of time in, in the people's lives of Israel was the time of the judges. It was a very chaotic time. It was a time that God was faithful to them, and yet his very own people turned away from following the God of scriptures, Yahweh, and they looked to the God of the foreign people around them, the foreign nations, and they started following the foreign gods. And God would judge them. They would sort of repent, not too much. And God would have mercy on them and would send a deliverer, a judge, a Messiah type uh, that pointed us to the great Messiah Jesus eventually. But the times of the judges was very chaotic. It was a circular, and they would go through this cycle over and over of, of, of God's faithfulness, and yet God's people's unfaithfulness. Well, Samuel, the book that we're in, kind of starts at the very beginning at the end of the time of Judges. And so it's very chaotic time. There's no leader uh, of God's people that are really there. We saw that in the very first of uh, 1 Samuel. But Samuel, the book of Samuel, ends a very different place. It ends with God uniting his whole kingdom under one king, David. So it's united under one king, and there's the Davidic uh, kingdom has been established by Yahweh, the very, the very kingdom and the very kingship uh, from which David's greater son Jesus would also rule and reign. Um, so this week we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's considered to be the very center and pentacle of everything that happens in the book of Samuel. This chapter is the highlight of the whole book of Samuel. It's the center of God's establishing his covenant and his Davidic covenant with David and with his people. It's God's promises going from Adam to, to Moses to Abraham, now to, 
David and through David to his people. It's one of the most significant chapters of the whole Bible. And it's one of the most significant truths of all of history uh, is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's right up there with the fall in Genesis 3, with the promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. 2 Samuel 7 belongs in your top three or four chapters of the Bible list. And we're going to only very briefly introduce a little bit of it today. We're not going to get into it too much today. But 2 Samuel 7 is also really a conclusion to some of the events and things that started in 2 Samuel 5. In 2 Samuel 5, God establishes David as king over all of Israel, not just two tribes, but all of Israel. He unites his people under David. David conquers Jerusalem that hadn't been conquered before, and it's the city of the great king, the city of David. It'll become the city of God, and ultimately our great hope is in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that will come down and will be the new Jerusalem and the new city of God where he will gather his people and they will be at rest with him forevermore. Um, David has conquered Jerusalem. He's defeated Israel's greatest enemy, the Philistines, not just once, but he's defeated them twice. Uh, if you remember the second time, he defeated them so thoroughly that they scattered and they left behind what? Remember? They left behind all their idols, uh, all their gods, uh, kind of showing that they were defeated and also reversing what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 6, where uh, God's people unwisely took the Ark of Covenant into battle they didn't supposed to. That was Eli's uh, wicked sons, Hopnia and Phinehas. He took it into battle, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant of God, um, the picture of God's presence, and, and they defeated Israel and killed 30,000 people. Well, we found out in chapter 6 of, of 2 Samuel that David gathers 30,000 people. I think it's a reversal of all that happens back here. And he goes and he gets the Ark back from where it was left. There's a lot more part of the story, um, but that's kind of what's going on. So in, in, in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 6, 1 Corinthians, where did that come from? I don't know. Uh, David brings back the ark to Mount Sinai. Now we're at the, the start of chapter 7, and at the start of chapter 7, the pace of the whole story starts slowing down. And I hope I'm in pain this morning a little bit, and when I'm in pain, my pace goes up. <laughs> and I apologize. I'm going a little fast. So it's like, so maybe I can follow 2 Samuel 7. The pace goes down. Why? Because we read that God has given uh, his people like victory over all the enemies. And for the first time, David now has like time on his hands to sit back and to enjoy some fellowship with one of his best friends, Nathan, who is the prophet of God, and he'll become pretty prominent in, in uh, future stories. So with this time on his hands... David begins to ponder, man, I have this beautiful, ornate house that I live in. Well, look at the Ark of the Covenant of God. Ah, oh, he lives in a tent. Uh, I'll build a house for God, David suggests. And it seems so right. It seems so appropriate. And the initial reaction of Nathan, his friend, was like, I'm all in. And uh, so what we're going to find is, is David's proposal and Nathan's reaction to that proposal uh, equated with what God wants, or is it not? That's where we're going to go. That's what we're going to learn. 
And uh, that's, that's uh, what we're going to see. As we do that, I'm going to invite you to go there with me, and uh, let's find out what God has for us on these first seven verses. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the text that's before us. I, I pray that you would uh, lead us through it, that you would show us uh, the truths that are there as we anticipate uh, a chapter ahead that is one of the most important chapters of all human history. And yet today we just barely scratched the surface of getting started on it. But I pray that you would show us the beauty of the things that are there, the details, the drama, that, it, that, um, that the truths of, of your Messiah Jesus that would be anchored in the history of David and, and his people. And that by seeing the, the way that Jesus is anchored back here in the history of David, that we would understand more and more about the promises that we have to us and what we have in Jesus for, for us too. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, where are we going to go today? We're going to go pretty slowly through chapter 7. I was talking to Tim earlier this week, and I'm like, I think I'm going to go slow. He said, do it. It's, it's fine. So, we're going to take three weeks to go through 2 Samuel 7. And uh, it's a very prominent chapter. We've talked about that in redemptive history. And we have to take what we read in Scripture and particularly what we read about the life of David and the story of David, and we have to move to what does that tell us about Jesus. But if we move to what it tells us about Jesus too fast, what we do is we lose how the truths of, of Christ are anchored in the history of redemption. Does that make sense? If we don't stick here and talk about the history of David and what's going on at that time, we, we fail to anchor the truths of what Jesus is doing and how he answers in his, the, to that promise, and, and we don't anchor it in, in the text. Here's an example. Man, 2 Samuel is, is all about how God makes a covenant with David, but really he's making a covenant that tells us about Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. And we've missed all the beauty of the detail and the drama of the story of the historical story of, that God intends for us to get benefit from. So we're going to slow down there. Certainly we have to take what we learn to Jesus, right? Because the whole Bible is about Christ. But if we do it too quickly, we lose connection to what God is trying to teach us about Christ and what his work is. So we're going to do it a little, little slowly uh, and, and really try to anchor uh, Christ and the promises that God gives us in redemptive history. And as we catch the drama and the detail, we'll be able to understand more about uh, to whom and to what um, David and David's story is pointing to. So we already said we have two, two points. David's big idea for building God's house, verses 1 through 3, and God's big corrective to David's big idea, verses 4 through 7. Um, okay, I've already mentioned the two things I wanted us to get. We were past that. That's good. So that's where David is in the story. God has been with David through many, many years. He's guided David through many, many things. He's provided and protected David through all kinds of circumstances, both uh, the, the enemy enemy and the enemy within, Saul, uh, all the way through. Um, and, and David has understood that God has given me the victory because he is with me, and he's the one who's given them over into my hands. He's the one that has given me uh, the throne. I haven't taken it for myself he had many times that he could have done that, but he, he never did that. So now God has given David the crown, the capital city, the land. He's given David rest over all his enemies. And he's also allowed David to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into town, the representation that now God is with us. And if you remember, uh, when the Ark was taken, it was said that God's glory had departed his people. Now the glory of God is back with his people, and things are good. Um, and one quick note, when uh, 
when the ark was near people that were right with God, they were blessed. When the ark and God's presence was near people that were not right with God, they were cursed. And I think that's the same with us today. The nearness of God is our greatest good if we're right with God. The nearness of God is the worst thing for us if we're not right with God. Uh, that was just extra. There you go. Uh, so David's big idea for building God's house. Uh, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. So David is in a place that we've never seen David before. He's in a place of rest. He's not running. He's not ducking for his life from spears being you know, thrown at him. And uh, we understand just how much of, at rest he is when we hear the word that uh, he's been given rest on every side from his enemies. There's none that are there. So, so um, David's been given a new city, and through the generosity of Hiram, the king of Tyre, a foreign country, he has a nice new pad. If you remember that, that's in 2 Samuel 5.13. This king of the foreign nations wanted to get on the good side of, of, of David, and so he, he has this grand pad built for him. Maybe we should say grand palace, since David is a king. Um, and how, how plush is it? How wonderful is it? Well, in the verse 2, it's considered, it, it's described as a cedar house. And in, that, in those days, that means, man, this was a high-end home. This had it all. I imagine David and the text that we are, he's kind of hanging out with one of his closest friends, Nathan, uh, a prophet of God. They're crashing in the man cave. But the man cave back then was probably on the rooftop, not down underneath, most likely. Uh, David's sipping wine. He's reclining in his easy chair. His feet are up. He's probably got his sword and his sling kind of behind him, like tucked away. doesn't really need it at the moment, although he'll need it again. He's enjoying meditating on all the Lord had given him and all the Lord had done. He was daydreaming about all that good stuff. And I think it went something like this. Man, Lord, you've given me all these victories, and now I live in this house, a house of cedar. It's got everything I want. It's man cave. My friend's here. I, I can put away my slingshot and, and my sword. Uh, there's no enemies. And then he looks over, and he's like, but the ark of the Lord is in a tent. I'm living in this house, and the ark of the Lord is in that tent. And he's pondering, he's back and forth, and he's like, man, that tent has seen better days. Right? It's been around, that ark has, has been around. And he's pondering these, th these things, and, and I imagine he probably looks and he's thinking, you know, all the foreign nations, they erect these beautiful structures, these temples for their gods, and the Yahweh, who is the God of gods and the King of kings, he lives in a tent. Man, and he, and he was struggling with those things. And um, he's like, this cannot be honoring to the Lord. Maybe David had in mind Deuteronomy 12. You can write this down. We're not going to read it, but you should go back and read it. Deuteronomy 12, verses 8 through 14, is a passage in Deuteronomy. Isn't that interesting? That God says that one day I'm going to settle my people down in land, and once I settle my people down and they're settled, then I will find a place for my temple, and I'll set up a, a structure that's more permanent. Uh, maybe David was thinking, I'm the man to do that. Maybe he had that in mind. I don't know. But he had this big idea. All of a sudden, he sits up in his easy chair, and he like, goes over to Nathan. He's like, Nathan, like, I've been thinking about this stuff. And verse 2, and he says this, See now, I dwell in this house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David only got that much out 
<laughs> before Nathan, I think they were good enough friends that Nathan's like tracking with him already. I know where he's going with this. And, and, and uh, you know, he immediately starts saying, I imagine their friendship is so close that he's like finishing his thought. And in verse 3, Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's in your mind, for the Lord is with you. And, and so you know, David's like, man, I live in this house. God. And I think that Nathan's filling in the blanks. Like David wants to build this house for God's, God's ark, you know, the ark of God. And he says, go and do it because God is with you. It, it makes sense. Almost everything that David had done up till now, we've been reading about it, has been blessed, right? Every project, uh, every endeavor, every venture that he's attempted, things have gone really, really well. And this thing, to focus not on your house, but on God's house, seems like, man, it's a no-brainer, right? Of course we should do that. Uh, David didn't need to consult the Lord. I mean, it's a no-brainer. Uh, and Nathan, when he heard about it, he didn't need to consult the Lord. It's a, it's a no-brainer, right? Uh, I'll give you approval. It's just it's a no-brainer. The king wants to build a house for God. Um, what could be better than that? How could God possibly not be pleased with that idea? So David, in his thinking about this plan, is speaking not so much as the Lord's king as just David, and Nathan is not speaking, at least first of all, as God's prophet. Neither one of them have, have sought the Lord's counsel so far uh, on it. Why? because it's a no-brainer, like we've been saying. But is their plan to build a house for God's ark? Is it in keeping with God's plan? Well, we sure would think so, but we're going to see the answer is absolutely no. How do we know that? Because God, that very same night, gives his plan, gives his answer, <laughs> gives his word on the, on the matter, and it's different than David and Nathan had. Verse 4 and 5. But in the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So that means it didn't come to Nathan before. So when he said, the Lord is with you, mm, that, didn't really, that wasn't really true. That was just Nathan's thinking. He was thinking the Lord has to be with you because if this is a good idea. And the Lord has been with you in the past. But now the word of the Lord actually comes. And he says this, go and say to my servant David, a very impregnated phrase that we'll have to talk about at some point, to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? So basically, the answer is like, no. No, your big idea and your big plan that seems so right and so good to you and seems like a no-brainer, no. That, the answer is no. Um, so that's our, our, first, our, our, our first answer. God says no. There's, there's three reasons. We're going to get to the reasons. God's going to elaborate on the why. But at least right now, we have the answer. No, you're not going to be the one to, to build my, my house. Um, we see uh, kind of another appearance at this point of a theme that's been running through the whole book of Samuel. We see that God's leaders, even the best of them, have limits uh, and limitations. Here's a few of the uh, examples of that. Eli, at the very first part, the first two chapters, well, actually chapter 1 of 1 Samuel 7, or, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 1, Eli, is, he has this woman that's in front of the temple. She's come to worship with her family and she thinks this woman is a drunk woman. And you're like, ah, oh, she's just a drunkard. You remember who that woman was? You remember that far back? Hannah. Hannah. Who said that? Man, Greg, you get, like, extra credit. That, that lady was Hannah. She wasn't drunk. He was wrong. Um, Samuel, when God said, I want you to go, and I want you to, to, to choose and anoint the king that I've chosen um, to be king, he goes to Jesse's house, and he sees Jesse's oldest, and he's like, is it Eliab? E-L-I-B. 
maybe, I think. And anyway, it's like, ah, oh, he's got to be the one. Look at him. Like, it'd be the one that walks through the door. You're like, whoa, yeah, that's him. God says what? No. So Samuel was wrong, even though it seemed like a no-brainer. Uh, David was absolutely sure that it was the right thing to murder Nabal. You might remember that story. It happened so long ago. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, intercedes and says some amazing truths to David to stop him from doing that and to keep him from murder. That would have been, he would have been a murderer uh, taking matters into his own hands. And so David was wrong. And here again, David is like, certain, this is a great plan. What could be better than this? And yet God has to correct his thinking, even though it seems so, so right. I think that we can say that we have, and, and even the greatest leaders of God's people, have a difficult time in understanding and knowing the full will of God, right? It's, it's not that easy to discern it. Uh, we have trouble with discerning it. We run on ahead of God. We often do projects that seem honorable and good and like no-brainers, and yet God is not in them, and not, God is not for them. Um, we need to seek God's wisdom on things that even seem like no-brainers. Uh, I think that's one thing that we need to get from that. We had that story happen only in a couple of chapters ago in, in 2 Samuel 5. We've referred to that chapter a lot. It might be worth going back and reading. It's beautiful. David goes up against his greatest enemy, God's greatest enemy, the Philistines. He beats them. He defeats them. But before he goes up to, to do that, he prays to the Lord, Lord, should I go up? Should we go up? Are you going to give them into our hands? And he seeks the Lord's wisdom. And um, the Lord says, yes, I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give them into your hands. This is how you should do it. And the Israelites just destroy the Philistines. The Philistines know that, wow, if we don't attack David right now while he's building the kingdom in this early stages of the, of the new king and the new kingdom, we're going to get, it's going to be bad for us. And so they gather more troops and they come against David again. David could have easily thought, man, we took them out so easily last time. We just destroyed them. We're going to do the same thing. He doesn't do that. David goes again, and he seeks the Lord. He's like, will you give them over to us? How shall we do this? And interestingly, God says, don't do it the way you did it before. I want you to do it a different way. Uh, so what well, seems like a no-brainer, we have to, uh, to, to go to the Lord and like, is this right? Even if you get counsel from other people, it's like, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. We have to be really, really careful uh, to seek the Lord. And uh, Romans 12, 2 is, is a good verse. I don't have it on the screen, but I think we need to pray, Lord, help us to, to lay hold of what is most pleasing and what is most good and what is mo most right. N not what we think is, but what is, according to your word. Uh, we need his spirit and the wisdom of his, of his spirit. Um, Psalm 131, we mentioned this, that, that the psalmist was like, I don't want to give myself over to the things that are too high and lofty for me. And I think David was starting to do that a little bit when he's like, I'll build a house for your name. I'll build a house for the ark. I'll, I'll do that. Uh, so that was the no. David's big idea, I'll build you a house. Nathan's confirmation, you should do it. The Lord is with you. God says no. And then he starts elaborating a little bit on why and why not. Um, verses 6 and 7. This is God's big corrective. Starts in verse 4, but really 6 and 7 he gives us the first reason of why not. We're going to have two more reasons of why not next week to add to it. It's like four, or because I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought, you, uh, brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. God's saying, I haven't dwelt in a house that's like a cedar house. I've never have. But I have been moving about in a tent. 
even in the tabernacle, wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of, my, one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So let me just be really blunt. The first reason that God says no to David is really critical and really important that we get it, is this, salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God alone. Salvation doesn't belong to us in the way we want to do it. It doesn't belong to David the way he thinks it should, do, it should be done. God alone takes the initiative at every uh, turning point of redemptive history. It's God's idea. It's God's plan. And it comes at God's initiative not at our initiative. I once heard a professor say, and this is in keeping with this, uh, about Abraham. It wasn't like Abraham said, hey, God, like everybody on earth is not really following you anymore, including my family and me, like I'm worshiping other gods. I think you probably should like pick somebody, make a big nation out of them, and, and have them like bless all the other nations of the world so more people follow you. I'll, I'll volunteer. Is that the way that happened? No. God saw one who was worshiping another God. Uh, he was like, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and Christ pursued us. It's not that we look good and we built a house for him. That's not the reason he pursues us. And uh, salvation belongs to the Lord. And because salvation belongs to the Lord, the ways and the means of salvation belongs to the Lord. We can trust it that if he redeems and saves through Christ, then we're really redeemed and we're really saved. And we can say, there is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. If we had it another way, we have to say, did I build a big enough house for him? Should I have lived in the tent and given him my house? We would always be questioning, have we done enough? And uh, we don't have to do that. It's really easy for our instincts and and our um, intuitions to mislead us, I think. And we see that here very clearly. It seems very honorable to not focus on your own things and focus on God's house, right? That seems a very honorable thing to do, to build him a house not to worry as much about your own. It seemed right to David under the circumstances. Nathan seemed to understand, man, this is good. If we would have been there, we would have probably said, yeah, do it, David. We would have been right there, and yet they were all wrong. Um, And and how often people have devised plans to build a church, to build a worship service, to craft something that more people will come to, and it's not God's plan. And yet it seems right, right? More people will come. More people will hear the gospel. More people will be saved. More people will know him. And yet, if it's not his plan, it's, it'll fail, and it's not good. And that's a lot of what's going on here. Uh, do we realize that God doesn't really need our projects? doesn't mean he doesn't use his projects through us, but he doesn't need our projects. He's designed the projects. He's designed the plan for worship, for mission, uh, for ministry, for, for, for the goals that he has. Now, to elaborate a little bit on verses 6 and 7, let's, let's do that. Um, When it comes to the issue of building a temple for God or a house, David doesn't need to restore something that once was. In other words, God said, I've never had that. I've never even asked anybody to do that for me, right? Um, So David doesn't need to meet a requirement that God had placed on the leaders that they had failed to fulfill. Does that make sense? He he didn't need to do anything. And the other question we have is, well, uh, where did the idea for the ark being in the tent come from? Man, maybe it should have been in something better all along. Well, it came from God. Moses didn't come up with the idea. In fact, God tells Moses exactly what this tent should look like and exactly the dimensions it should be. Uh, he gave very specific design for it. 
Um, and so he's never asked for a temple to be built. He's, he says, I've been quite content. And the, the, the passage says, I've never dwelt in a house. I've never stayed. Your version might say, I've never stayed in a house before. Um, all these years, I've been traveling about. And I think there's a beauty to this, that over this week, I'm like, man, this is a beautiful truth. Uh, literally, depending on your version, one of the versions says that uh, God was uh, going back and forth with his people. Another version says that he was moving about. I think that's ESV. Does the ESV say he was moving about? Is that in there? Does anybody have the ESV open? Moving about. Okay. He was moving about with his people. So this idea of, of God being in the, not, not God, but the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God being in the tent, God was saying, hey, I'm not going to settle down if my people are still moving about. I'm going to move with them. I'm going to be with them. He's saying, uh, here that he is a God who is with his people. He's with us. He, he's, he's the God who goes not only with us, but if you remember, we talked a little bit about the ark, the ark before. The ark, they would take that ark, they would move it, and it would be saying that God is going before us. God is going behind us. God is carrying us underneath us. The whole idea of that is the presence of God is carrying us through. Uh, God can't settle down while his people are moving about. His people are pilgrims at this point, and, and they've been wandering around in the wilderness from place to place, and guess what? God's been with them from place to place. That's part of the beauty of God's ark dwelling in a tent, um, going around with them and going around before them. It, it reminded me of Revelation 1 when it says that Jesus is among his lampstands. Jesus is walking around amongst the, his church. He's with us today, and he's not just sitting down on his throne. He's with us and walking and moving that's what God is doing for them there. And, and perhaps um, that helps us to understand why God doesn't want a cedar temple at this point. There's going to be more war that's coming. He's got victory now, but there's some, some things coming. Here's a few things to end on. I was going through these things trying to make them fit into this nice little flow, and they probably don't. I don't know if they do, but there's some points. I want you to get some of the points. It was some beautiful things. Um, one of the things that we have to be really careful with is that the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord of Hosts, the Ark of God, um, the Ark of Testimony, and there's one more. But anyway, there's, there's five. I can't remember the next one. But we have this idea. This is a little box. This is about two and a half feet by four feet. This is not a picture of God being carried around in a box. The scriptures is very clear that says God cannot be contained by anything that could be made by human hands. So we have to be careful with our thinking there. This is not this little icon. That's what 1 Samuel was all about. It's not this little treasure chest that if you take this little God in a box with you, everything will be good in your life. That's not the point. Just put that in your mind. Uh, we'll uh, talk more about what is the point then. Um, it's really easy for us to promise to do great things for God if he will just bless us. Have you ever done that? Lord, if you'll give me this girlfriend, this wife, this husband, this thing... Or if you just take this, this thing away, I'll build you a house. I'll, I'll think about you and not me. Have you ever done that? I have. On the other side, we can think like, man, God has done all these great things for me. Now I'll give him my attention, right? And that's sort of what's going on here. It seems pretty honorable, but it's also pretty, in another way, misguided. You know, salvation doesn't work that way. You know, salvation is not a tit for tat. It's not we do something for God, and then he does something for us. I think that's part of why God stops David from doing it. Um, right there. It's partly like that's not the way salvation works. Salvation is what God does for us. 
not what we can do for him. Uh, yeah, another point. Told you it didn't flow, right? There you go. Uh, God didn't need something better or more than he had, had already ordained. God ordained what he had planned and what he wanted and purposed. He didn't need something more or better. And I think today that we, we try oftentimes to, to give him something more or better than he wants. You know, we, we, we move away from the simple things of, man, be about the word and about the sacraments and about the, the ordinary means that I've given you to grow in. And we're like, I need this. I need this program and this thing and this program and this thing. And God doesn't need more and better than what he's ordained. That's a pretty important thing. Um, worldly strategies, we need to be really, really careful because sometimes they seem very honorable, right? Sometimes it seems like, yes, if we put that into place or if we simply did this or changed this in our family or this in our church, that more people would come and more people would hear. And we have to be really, really careful not to jump ahead of God because those are things that are too great for us. God has given us things, and he says, the things that I've given you, walk in them uh, to do. Um, in First Chronicles 22, 7 and 8, we're also not going to go there, so if you want to jot that down, it's a good place to go. Um, one of the reasons that Scripture gives of why David didn't build this house, Solomon, by the way, does build a house that's more permanent eventually. Um, but in First Chronicles 22, it says part of the reason David didn't is he was a man of bloodshed. He was a, a warrior, and there was still more war to be done. And we'll see that coming up pretty soon. It wasn't finished yet. Still not finished. There's still more battles to be fought. That's why God's like, don't build me this permanent place yet. By the way, uh, this, I told you don't, don't jump ahead too fast uh, to Jesus, but guess where does God dwell now? He dwells in the tabernacle of his people, right? He goes with us always, everywhere. We fight the battles. Um, uh, fifth thing, this is the fifth extra thing, and there's only six. There we go. Um, man, I just want to go back over it again. The beauty that God is with us. That's the beauty of the picture of the tent and, and the ark. God is with us. He's here. He's dwelling and walking among his, uh, his people. And I think that it's real easy to get this idea because man's supposed to carry the ark around on poles that um, the point in the picture is not that we have to carry God around. The point in the picture of the ark being with his people is that he always carries us around. And we have to be really, really careful with that. But God wants that picture for his people to be, man, we fell and fall without him carrying us around. It's not us carrying him around. It's not us building his house. It's, his, it's, it's him build, building a house for himself through us. Uh, the grand plan of the Lord is, is not man doing something big for him. The grand plan of the Lord is for the people to see that he's done something big for them. Have you ever heard that? It's like, man, you should do something so, so big and venture so, so big that if it's doomed to failure unless God is in it. Well, God is not about that primarily. God is about you seeing what he's done for us and for, for you in Christ. That's what he wants us to dwell on and focus on. Uh, we, our bent is what can we do for Jesus? God's bent is what have I done for you? And that needs to be our bent too. Um, you build me a house? God says, no. I will build a house for you and I'll build my house through you so that my name will be built. I'll build a house for my name. Um, and how does that happen? A house through his name comes through David, through his kingship, through his dynasty. By the way, one of my favorite theologians is D.A. Carson that's still alive today. 
and he calls it dynasty, through David's dynasty. And I'm like, what is a dynasty? Have you ever heard that? Has anybody ever heard that? I might be the right way to say it. Because he's a pretty, I said dynasty, but I don't even know. But David, so through David's dynasty, we get Jesus. That's the way the house is going to be built. And today it's built through the church, through salvation, through people coming into him by the ordinary means that he's ordered and, and done and that we should be about. I'm going, to, I'm going to stop with that. We're going to pick it back up. We'll recap it a little bit next week and go a little bit further. Uh, but let me pray, and then we'll um, go to the table. Uh, so, Father, we thank you for the passage that's before us. Man, there's a lot of truth, even in, in, in the introductory part of this beautiful chapter where you uh, will give us wonderful covenants and promises that you fulfill in Christ for your people today. Father, I pray that we would be uh, sensitive to, to your ways, and, and when things seem like no-brainers to add to our church or to our worship or to our lives, help us to seek the Lord on it. Father, help us to seek your word on it, not just things that seem right to do. There's a lot of things that seem good and right and holy. Certainly the thing that David wanted to do seems so good, and yet you are not in it at all. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to focus as you intend, not on what we can give to you, and, um, but what you've given to us. And Father, I pray that as we do see that, that it would change what we give back to you. But Father, the first thing and our first thoughts, may we dwell on the goodness of the gospel and what we have in Jesus. Uh, the, the, the greater son of David. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to do the 